investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 28 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kasshorn. Today is Monday, August 26, 2019. Got a number of interesting events from the past week that we're going to chat about on the podcast today. From the top, some M&A news in Canada with Pemina acquiring Kinder Morgan Canada in a $2.3 billion pipeline and infrastructure deal. We're going to discuss the strategic rationale behind that M&A transaction. A brief trade war update with China firing back with an additional $75 billion of tariffs on U.S. goods. Why are they escalating the trade war? A bit of macro stuff, we're going to comment on U.S. PMI falling below 50 for the first time since 2009. I think that's a really, really important data point for investors to consider. So we're going to talk about what's driving this economic slowdown in the U.S. Some additional M&A news with VMware announcing two deals in one day with the acquisitions of both Pivotal and Carbon Black. Why did they do these deals? And lastly, we're going to touch on some portfolio management with respect to what long-term investors should do now that the yield curve has inverted. Big deal up in Canada with Pemina Pipeline Corp announcing a $2.3 billion acquisition of Kinder Morgan Canada. Now, Kinder Morgan Canada was a relatively recent uh, spin-off or carve-out of its larger parent, Kinder Morgan, which trades in the U.S. based in Houston, I believe. So they carved out their Canadian assets and took them public, I believe, within the past two years. So fairly brief life for Kinder Morgan Canada. And ultimately, this was kind of a mercy kill. It was at a 37% premium, but I should comment that that was off near an all-time low. I believe it traded at that low the same week that they announced this deal. So this 37% premium looked high, but it's just where it traded about six months ago. Now this deal represents an increased bet by Pemina on the future of the Canadian oil sands. Pemina also becomes a key provider of the condensate that oil sands companies need to blend with their thick crude to enable it to flow through pipelines. So what condensate is, it's, it's just very, very light, petroleum liquid that is blended with the oil sands bitumen to make it flow freely through these pipelines. But uh, another thing with respect to this transaction is concurrently Pemina is acquiring the Koshin pipeline from parent company Kinder Morgan, uh, the U.S. entity for about $2 billion. And this Kinder Morgan Canada deal is contingent upon the closing of that Koshin $2 billion pipeline transaction. Other key assets in the deal on the Kinder Morgan Canada side include oil storage terminals up near Edmonton. One key aspect of this transaction, it really highlights an ongoing trend that we've really seen over the past, you know, five, six years, which is international capital flight out of the oil sands. You've seen a number of relatively large divestitures, uh, exits from the Canadian oil sands, whether it be ConocoPhillips, Royal Dutch Shell, Devon, and now Kinder Morgan effectively wiping their hands dry, cutting loose uh, any Canadian oil sands assets and allocating capital elsewhere. A lot of ENP companies going and reinvesting the proceeds into the Permian. Remember that was the strategic rationale that Devon was following. 
touch on valuation 12.4 times EBITDA which is relatively good valuation for this asset interesting commentary from the Pemina CEO talking about this deal and a former Kinder Morgan Canada asset Keystone XL pipeline which they actually recently divested to the Canadian government after facing years and years of regulatory and environmentalist pushback. The, the CEO of Pemina stated, we don't want to submerge our entire management team and subject our entire organization and reputation to all the noise that entails. Basically what he's saying is, look, Keystone XL, we can operate this better than anyone else, but that thing is just radioactive at this point and we wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. So that's an interesting deal happening in Canada, certainly a fairly large one at $2.3 billion. What are your thoughts on this transaction? Yeah, first for the strategic rationale. So it will give Pemina some oil storage capacity at Edmonton um, with the Kinder Morgan Canada portion. And then as you mentioned, the Cochin uh, pipeline takes uh, condensate to the Chicago market. So there is some strategic rationale there as well as those assets. Um, as you had mentioned, kind of in that 12.3, 12.4 times EBITDA, EBITDA multiple on the transaction. So another $400 million of EBITDA that Pemina will be gaining in this transaction. But the really interesting aspect, as you had mentioned, is just the competitive environment in the pipeline space right now is they had done their strategic alternatives process a few months ago, went no bid, um, or if they did get any bids, they must have just been in, you know, in the lower range where they weren't um, weren't favorable for the company at that point in time. Right. So Kinder Morgan Canada announced a public process where they aimed to sell the company, and effectively, no one came to the to the table to buy them, and the stock dropped pretty precipitously. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And then in terms of deal specific. Um, notes is that the closing of both the transactions are conditional on one another. So that is interesting. It will have to pass through Competition Canada. But um, at least in terms of what the markets are saying in this deal, there really isn't much concern of the deal closing as it's trading at a very negligible spread, you know, less than less than a couple percent annualized. So. Right, right. So it's kind of in the 2% range. So I'd consider this a fairly low risk deal. Any assets uh, in addition to that, these are low risk assets, you know, long long life uh, storage assets and, and pipelines that are fairly consistent cash flow generators. All right, moving on to some uh, trade war updates here. So China fired back with 75 billion of additional tariffs on U.S. goods. It announced that it will impose five to 10% tariffs on 75 billion of U.S. products. These would include agricultural products, apparel, chemicals, textiles, things of that nature. Now these tariffs are being applied to the remaining U.S. imports in which the punitive taxes, these tariffs, have not yet been applied. And the reason that they're doing it, the reason that they are escalating this trade war further, is it's basically in response to the U.S. applying the latest round of tariffs on 300 billion of Chinese products. So basically, this trade war has gone tit for tat thus far. The U.S. announces something. Not only does China not roll over, but they come back with uh, basically the, the opposite, which is additional tariffs on U.S. goods. So it is kind of a tit-for-tat escalation here, and what we're seeing in this case is further escalation on the Chinese side in response to the latest tariffs announced by the U.S. 
As for timing, the, the Chinese tariffs on 75 billion in U.S. goods will be imposed in two batches, the first on September 1st and then on December 15th. Now, these are the same dates that the U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods will go into effect. One way that the Chinese are responding here to the increased economic pressure causing, caused by the U.S. tariffs on their exports is they are letting its currency drop to the lowest level in a decade. So what this does is a weaker yuan or, or weaker Chinese currency makes Chinese exports cheaper. Basically, it is somewhat a, of a relief valve or a, you know an air cushion to dampen the effects of this trade war on their economy. But it's not without negative consequences. Uh, if Chinese citizens see the currency rapidly depreciating, that could lead to uh, act flight of capital out of the country, as they obviously don't want to see themselves get poorer. One major key consideration in this trade war is that China imports less than the U.S. does from it, so China's ability to impose tariffs is quite limited. As you could see, China's response to 300 billion of tariffs on the U.S. side is only 75 billion. It just goes to show you the massive trade imbalance on both sides. The U.S. can actually enact much more pressure on the trade side, just given they import much more from China than they do export. But uh, on the Chinese side, obviously, this is negative for their economy. Uh, consensus is that this latest escalation will cause Chinese economic growth to decline by about 50 basis points, so half a percent, taking economic growth down uh, this year for below their target of 6%. Uh, so we're definitely seeing some negative effects on the Chinese uh, economic growth figures. What are your thoughts on this latest uh, ta uh, trade war battle? Yeah, so first with regards to their GDP, be their estimate being uh, the you know lowered now, uh, I would still have my money on them making their estimate. Uh, they usually find a way to, you know, fudge the numbers and make their estimates with regards to GDP. But as well, it's just been a bizarre, like, like you had mentioned. So now another seventy-five billion dollars worth. Uh, this is the last of the remaining goods. So now uh, that they can levy tariffs on, and so China will have to be more creative with any further retaliation. But as well, you know, just bizarre in the sense of there was also Trump tweeting on Friday, I believe it was, um, where he had hereby ordered U.S. companies to, uh, you know, move back their Chinese operations back to the U.S., which was just kind of a, a weird tweet as the enforceability of this, like there was, you know, some some people in the markets wondering if this was actually an executive order, which obviously it wasn't, um, you know, can really just be taken with a grain of salt, but just adds to the overall confusion in the marketplace right now. Yeah, certainly you never want to trade or invest based off any sort of Trump tweets because uh, more often than not, they seem unrealistic and perhaps nonsensical. But, you know, you definitely need to take it into account. And this trade war has been happening for, what, 18 months now? And it's only got worse and worse and worse. And you see him tweet that, oh, we're having uh, great talks and things are really progressing. But realistically, we are definitely not seeing any of that. I made a joke that Trump is playing uh, 3D chess here. His strategy is to perhaps get interest rates to go negative just on uh, these punitive economic measures that he is inflicting on not just China, the Chinese economy, but that affects the global economy and the U.S. You're seeing uh, you know, a lot of U.S. companies struggling with these tariffs, and ultimately that gets passed on to the U.S. consumer, and we know that the U.S. consumer drives 
2% of US GDP. And so if you don't have the support of that consumer and prices are rising, then you know that's certainly not great for US GDP figures, which he holds so dearly. Absolutely. And looking forward to this week, we do have the G7. So I'm sure there will be um, some quotes from there from uh, the Trump camp. Getting to some macroeconomic data here, U.S. PMI fell below 50, signaling a manufacturing decline in the U.S. for the first time since 2009. What happened here is that U.S. manufacturing activity is contracted for the first time in nearly 10 years with IHS Markets U.S. Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI, dropping to 49.9 in August. I wanted to explain what PMI or the Purchasing Managers Index is without getting too technical. Basically, the reason why I wanted to flag this for investors and why this data point is so important is that the PMI is one of the most reliable leading indicators in assessing the economy. And what we mean by leading indicators is it gives you insight into forecasting where the economy is heading on a short-term basis. What the PMI is, it's a monthly service of purchasing and supply executives in the US asking them to identify month over month changes in 10 business activities, such as new orders, production, employment, deliveries, inventories. Now, this figure, the 49.9, was US specific, but they do have PMIs globally. And what we've seen as a trend over the past six to six to 12 months is dramatically declining PMIs with many below 50 globally. Just recently, the US was one of the few countries with a PMI remaining above 50, but that's no longer. And what a PMI reading above above 50 signals is an expansion, while a PMI reading below 50 signals a contraction. So it's relatively easy to read. Now, economists, there was a consensus estimate that PMI would come in for August at 50.5, and it came in with quite a big miss at 49.9, so certainly a negative surprise on that side. And globally, PMIs are below 50, or at least declining largely in you know nearly every major economy and this is really just showing evidence of a major global economic slowdown and also it's fueling recession fears this has been a topic that we've discussed you know ad nauseum over the past uh, number of months whether it be uh, inverted yield curve or negative interest rates or now pmis below 50 these are all signaling the same thing which is a global economic slowdown I would like to point out that there is somewhat of a feedback loop with the manufacturing PMI as it is something that is sensitive to trade wars or really just general uncertainty by nature. Um, and one other indicator being the services PMI, which is similar uh, to the manufacturing PMI, just focusing on the services sector is that it is actually still above 50 at 50.9 with its last reading, although that did come in below expectations. It still is in that expansion territory. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that the services uh, area of the economy is larger in the U.S. than the manufacturing sector. So there is a little bit of a contradiction there, but something to keep in mind that it, it is very much of a feedback loop because there is some anxiety globally uh, that purchasing managers that will be reflect, reflected in their orders. For sure. And you know, you make a good point of it being a self-fulfilling prophecy in that 
uh, you know, businesses see declining economic numbers and, you know, it scares them. Perhaps they want to slow down their hiring, perhaps they want to slow down their expansion plans, and, and it just turns into this feedback loop. The other thing you got to consider is the effect of this trade war, right? How much of that is flowing through these negative economic data points that continue to pile on? And that being said, if they somehow resolve this trade war, will that just erase all these negative data points and will go into a growth mindset again and start seeing much better um, economic figures coming out globally? So that's to be seen, and it's certainly something to keep an eye on. I believe monitoring the PMI figures going forward really makes sense for investors. Relatively odd event in the M&A space with VMA, VMware announcing not one but two deals on the same day with the acquisitions of both Pivotal and Carbon Black. So in a rare double deal, VMware announced the acquisition of software development platform Pivotal, Pivotal Software for $2.7 billion and also cloud security company Carbon Black for $2.1 billion. So almost $5 billion of deals from VMware announced in one day. Got a quote here from the VMware CEO on the strategic rationale behind these deals. He stated, these acquisitions address two critical technology VMware priorities of all businesses today. It is building modern enterprise-grade applications and protecting enterprise workloads and clients. With these actions, we meaningfully accelerate our subscriptions and SaaS offerings and expand our ability to enable our customers digital transformation. So there's some uh, corporate strategic speak for you. Uh, some background on these companies. Now, Carbon Black was founded in 2002. It went public in early 2018. At the time of its IPO, its valuation was about $1.25 billion. Stock was relatively volatile. It traded as low as less than $13 earlier this year, but since recovered to about $21 per share. Now, VMware in this deal is paying $26 bucks per share in cash, so relatively decent premium for Carbon Black shareholders there. They expect the deal to close by the end of uh, January 2020. On the Pivotal side, this was actually originally incubated at VMware and EMC Corporation, which um, EMC Corporation was taken over by Dell, taken private, and then Dell recently came public, and they actually control VMware. They have a controlling stake in VMware, so it's basically Pivotal returning to its parent company, which incubated it uh, all those years ago. Now, these deals were were relatively weird. They were, um, I'd say, way outside of VMware's core competency, and investors really punished the stock. You saw VMware down 10% on the news, pretty heavy volume. So investors not too pleased on this uh, announcement of this double deal. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, so with regards to some of the negative sentiment, uh, you'd mentioned that it's down about 9%, which is quite unusual given that these are cash deals. So there is no share consideration, which would put some short pressure from merger arbitragers. But the other interesting aspect is that, yeah, investors have been quite negative on it. Just with regards to corporate governance, where some sell-side analysts have mentioned a view that VMware may have been forced to acquire Pivotal by Dell, as you had mentioned, bringing it back under control of Dell. The other interesting aspect is that some of the investors believe there might be some margin dilution um, with the business model um, as you know, Pivotal does have lower margins, uh, so there is some concern there. 
The other interesting thing that I would like to point out is that Carbon Black is actually trading through the cash consideration that you had mentioned of $26. The last I had checked, it was trading in the $26.13 range. So it is trading above that cash consideration amount, which would indicate that investors think an overbid may be coming. And, and if there is an overbid, uh, there would be a $70 million break fee paid by Carbon Black if they accept a superior proposal. So that would be in the 4% range of, of total deal size. Right, makes sense. Or perhaps they're not uh, too impressed with the valuation and the premium and they're looking for VMware to pay more. But we shall see on that one. Another piece of odd uh, company-specific news is at Overstock.com, a fairly interesting stock and a very dynamic and interesting CEO, Patrick Byrne, who is, seems to be always in the, in the media, uh, not generally for good reasons. Well, we had uh, really interesting news with his retirement. Do you have any thoughts on that and what happened there? Yeah, so I would highly recommend taking a look at his resignation letter um, which was published, I believe, last Thursday, where he indicated his reason for stepping down as CEO was his involvement as a federal informant in the investigation of a Russian spy whom he was dating, and that it, this made performing his duties impossible. And so he made various references to his rabbi in Omaha, which was alluding to Buffett as his, Warren Buffett that is, who his father was actually an executive at GEICO um, back in the early days of GEICO and was actually one of the reasons it is believed that Warren Buffett invested in the company. And so his father, that's where their family's wealth has come from. They've made a lot of money in the insurance industry over the years as he was known as a very high quality executive. Um, but you had mentioned you know, his involvement with Overstock.com where they were kind of one of the pioneers in the e-commerce space back in the late 90s, early 2000s. But as you had mentioned, very weird CEO in the sense of once their stock did become under pressure in around 2004 it began, he was really going on a crusade against naked short selling, um, which he blamed for the company's struggles. And more recently has become a major advocate for cryptocurrencies um, investing a lot of company resources into blockchain projects as well as a new exchange that would be on the on the blockchain that would combat naked short selling which from most market participate participants point of view really isn't an issue so it's kind of addressing an issue that I and myself personally don't believe is an issue um, but just in terms of overstocks performance uh, over the last number of years. Uh, they're down 46% over the last year and down 4% over the last five years. So the stock really hasn't done much over the last number of years. Right, but it did pop a little bit on news of his retirement, just given that investors, I think they're pretty fed up with his antics and they feel like this is noise, you know, undue noise that is finally leaving the situation and they can allow Overstock to operate with all these distractions. Put out a blog post last week called Should Long-Term Investors Worry About a Yield Curve Inversion? Now the media has been heavily focused on gloom and doom that has historically accompanied a yield curve inversion. Now I say that uh, in the media it's if it bleeds it leads. 
and that's what they use to get clicks. They like to focus on bad news. And so what happened on Wednesday, August 14th, so about a week and a half ago, we had the first yield curve inversion in which the 10-year yield fell below the two-year treasury yield. Now, investors kind of freaked out about this. The Dow dropped 800 points in the day, which was the largest drop of 2019. CNBC, of course, came out with their Markets in Turmoil special, which usually happens uh, after large market drops and uh, notably is a relatively consistent contrarian indicator. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there are you know additional points of consternation in the market that shows how concerned investors are with respect to markets. There's almost 17 trillion of negative yielding debt globally, which includes 1 trillion of negative yielding corporate debt. So a lot of investors buying negative yielding bonds, which obviously shows you, look, something is happening in the markets. I wanted to briefly touch on what is a yield curve inversion. Well, what it is, it's a phenomenon in the government bond market in which the long-term bond yield typically that of the 10-year treasury bond, falls below the yield of a short-term bond. So typically on the short-term, we're talking about the three-month or the two-year. It's an abnormal event. Typically, uh, yields are not inverted. Specifically in the U.S., I know, uh, you know, perhaps the Japanese yield curve has been weird for a long time, but an inverted yield curve is a weird event. Past yield curve inversions, in which long-term bond yields fall below that of short-term treasury bond yields, have often been a harbinger of an economic recession and a bear market or a big decline in the stock market. Now, the jury's out on whether uh, an inversion signals an upcoming recession or, in fact, is one of the causes of an upcoming recession. But in the U.S., the previous five occasions in which the yield curve did invert, a recession followed. While the timing isn't super consistent, historically, the economy has entered a recession within 24 months that the yield curve did invert. So the timing there isn't relatively consistent. I mean, it's kind of all over the place, but over the past kind of five, six yield curve inversions in the US, the economy has gone into a recession uh, within the next two years. Now, why does an inverted yield curve matter? Well, the reason that many investors sold down equities uh, about a week and a half ago upon learning that the yield curve is inverted is that they believe, judging by precedent yield curve inversions, that a recession is likely to happen within the next 24 months. They're basically going off what happened historically. They also believe that a recession would bring your standard bear market, meaning stock market decline of minus 20% or greater. But there is a problem with using the inverted yield curve as an indicator on what to do with your investments. Number one is my thoughts are if you're certain that the market was going to fall sometime over the next two years by an indeterminate amount, say, you know, 20, 30%, like, would you actually sell? even though, you know, in the meantime, it could rally pretty significantly. I know uh, over the past uh, handful of yield curve inversions, the S&P 500 has actually rallied uh, north of 13% prior to the next recession. So that's something to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is if you actually do, you know, have perfect timing, you top ticket, you sell right at peak valuations, peak of the market, would you buy back in? And if so, how would you know when the bottom is? So you effectively need to make two perfect decisions, perfect time when to sell, perfect time when to buy, assuming that, you know, the historical average does sustain itself and the market does 
in fact decline. So what I'm saying is that I don't think it's necessarily a good idea for long-term investors to plow out of their uh, equity investments here. Basically what long-term investors should do is uh, we looked at some data and by long-term I'm talking about 10-year returns. So we looked at the yield curve inversions over the past uh, 40 years. And since 1978, there has been uh, about a dozen, you know, 10 to 12 of them. And over that time period, uh, we're talking about 10-year annualized returns. They've largely been positive. You know, at the high end, we've had, uh, after the December 1988 inversion over the next 10 years, the S&P 500 compounded north of 18% annualized, which is just a massive return. Like, no one would ever complain about that. And if you sold there, you look like an idiot. Now, the lowest and only negative 10-year uh, future return from an inversion was that during the tech bubble. February 2000, uh, the 10-year subsequent returns were negative 0.6% annualized, which sucks, but that's not a massive loss. Uh, nonetheless, uh, on average, since 1978, the you know 10 or so yield curve inversions, the subsequent 10-year annualized return of the S&P 500 was 10.6%. So that's a positive figure, and 10.6% annual return, in my opinion, is a very good investment return. And so that's something for long-term investors to consider. Yes, you do take some pain in a recession and in a bear market, but I think instead of trying to you know, be cute with it, sell at the top, think you're picking a new bottom and uh, getting in and out and dancing in and out of the market, that you're, you're probably better off just holding and you know this is the price, this is the premium you pay for taking that volatility in the market as a long-term investor. And that's it, ladies and gents, for episode 28 of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you liked it, you can check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. As always, we'll chat with you next week. If you like it, please give us a review, leave some comments, uh, ask us some questions, reach out on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever it is, send us an email. We'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.